Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, here you'll meet embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners just like you and me. Today, I'm here to speak with Professor and Pastor Lauren Winner about living the life of faith amidst a pandemic. And I'm delighted that you're here with us. Well, it is my great pleasure to welcome Lauren Winner to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. Lauren Winner is a historian, author, lecturer, and Episcopal priest. She is Associate Professor of Christian Spirituality at Duke Divinity School. She writes and lectures on Christian practice, the history of Christianity in America, and Jewish-Christian relations. Lauren Winner's books include Girl Meets God, Mudhouse Sabbath, Still, Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis, and a book on biblical tropes for God called Wearing God. Her most recent book is The Dangers of Christian Practice. Welcome, Lauren, to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm very happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Well, our topic today is pandemic Christianity, and we are well into this coronavirus pandemic and still struggling to make sense of it all. And you're a student of history. So what does your study of history show us about this pandemic? Well, I'm really glad you asked me that. I have been doing a deep dive into areas of church history that I really prior to six or eight months ago knew very little about. I knew that we had a a history of plagues and pandemics. I knew that there had been a bubonic plague, the so-called Black Death in Europe. I knew that there were various yellow fever outbreaks in late 18th, early 19th century America, but I really didn't know very much about how Christian communities or really any communities responded to those outbreaks. So I've been reading, reading a lot, availing myself of a lot of really fabulous scholarship by historians of those eras. And part of what has really struck me is the similarities between certain moves made then and now, certain ways that Christians in particular had of responding to plagues and pandemics in the past that still seem to be part of how our culture is responding to this pandemic. Of course, there are many differences, but there are some really striking similarities. And and the similarities are not always similarities that I at least feel good about. And I think one of the, the really striking similarities between, say, responses in the Middle Ages and early American responses, which then raises for me a question of where where we see this in our culture today, has to do with the, the habit of people, and I am talking about Christian people, to cast blame 
for pandemics and plagues and to to scapegoat. And so you see in the Middle Ages, you see a lot of insider-outsider line drawing. And so some of the people who are blamed for outbreaks of plagues are outsiders to the Christian community. Very unsurprisingly, in some communities, Jews get blamed for for bringing the plague, for poisoning the town's water and, and creating outbreaks of plague by so doing. And you find instances of really horrible violence done by, by Christians to Jewish communities because of that. Medieval Christians blamed Jews for lots of things and found lots of discursive rationales to commit great violence to Jewish communities. So perhaps that's not surprising. It's still really quite sobering. You also find in the Middle Ages Christians casting blame within Christian communities. So asking, well, so what is God punishing us for and who is responsible? And and particular sinners and particular sinful behaviors got sort of targeted. So gambling, prostitutes, johns were often called out as somehow being blameworthy for the plague. So you see a lot of that blame in the Middle Ages. And then you see very similar moves in um, in the early modern era. So there's there's a lot of really interesting literature from outbreaks of the plague in 17th century England. And one of the pieces that most interests me about that literature is how people talked about going to the theater. Theater going was considered immoral and it was understood that if there was a plague about and you jostled yourself into close quarters in a theater with people that you would also spread the plague. So there was this both epidemiological critique of theater going and a moral critique. And you see very similar discourse in America in the 1980s with the AIDS epidemic, right? That that behaviors that are glossed as immoral, be they intravenous drug use or same-sex sexual practice, they get glossed as immoral and they get identified as epidemiologically risky and it's you could you could just slot the different behavior into that same same formulation from 16th century England. So Lauren you're a you're a student of theology you're a, a Christian priest this idea that illness or plague is a punishment from God is there any biblical foundation for that view? I mean we often hear it and we probably say it but what does the Bible say? There's no one obvious theological way to think about plague or illness. And what shows shows that to us in the context of medieval plague is that there was also plague in the Middle East in, in Islamic communities. And Islamic communities had quite different theological reasoning about what the plague was. So Christian communities are thinking that the plague is a punishment from God. But by and large, Islamic communities understood the plague as a mercy, as a martyrdom, as as a merciful gift of death from God to the faithful. And it's just so striking to me to step back and say, here at the same, roughly the same time in history, these two great religious communities, they are both theologically reasoning about this, and they they are theologically reasoning in quite different ways. I think today when I think about theology and the plague, I'm very interested in how we think about sin and suffering. You know, it's striking that Julian of Norwich um, 
wrote and lived during plague times. And what we hear in Julian's text is, it's just sin. We need to reason together about what sin is or is not, how we talk about sin, but stop trying to blame people. And I, I think it's very striking that that testimony and her particular peculiar and compelling reasoning about sin emerges in this context of the plague. Mm. It makes me think of an article I saw somewhere where a person was saying, look, this coronavirus is a created thing, is part of creation, let's say. It is what it is. It's a, it's a living, it's not a moral being. So it does what a virus does. And that's just a whole different way of looking at her or adds another layer, I think, of um, complexity. Absolutely. And I think the question then becomes, so we understand that the virus is a creature of God, as we are creatures of God. Let's assume that in a fully redeemed or pre-fallen world, this virus would not kill us. So it's not that the virus exists as the problem, it's that the virus can't coexist with its necessary host, right? It's also a problem for the virus. When the virus kills us, that particular virus loses its host, right? So we, we have plenty of critters coexisting in our bodies, right? Maybe what we ought to be hoping for, envisioning, is not the destruction of the virus, but what is what is what does healing look like from God's perspective? Maybe it looks like perfect coexistence. And this is why, you know, to go back to Susan Sontag's essay from 40 plus years ago, Illness as Metaphor, where she she spotlights and lifts up and criticizes our habit of using military metaphor to speak about illness. So yeah. That, that we're in a war against the virus and we're battling the virus and people are the virus's victims or they've won over the virus. And that metaphorical language, of course, places us in a particular relationship to this other creature created by God. And it's the enemy military combatant pose. And then we have to say, well, if the virus is our enemy, and we are Christians, then you know where, where I'm going with this sentence. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, afraid I do. So then we're supposed to be praying for the virus if the virus is our enemy. What, what are we meant to be praying for? It's eradication, is that how we pray for our enemies? So I think there are many avenues of Christian theological reasoning about this far beyond the question of, does God punish us with viruses? Well, beyond the theological discussions, which are fascinating, what is your everyday work as an Episcopal priest looks like? What kind of conversations are you having with people in your congregation? Well, one way that it looks is Zoomified. So I have not seen in person a member of my congregation since this started. I have not set foot in my church building. Now, that is in part because my church building is an hour away from where I live. And there are, of course, all kinds of losses entailed in in all of that. I think Episcopalians do sacred space pretty well, and I I really miss being in my little jewel box of a church uh, in Lewisburg, North Carolina. One thing it also means is that although I'm praying with my congregation online, I am not celebrating the Eucharist. 
so that's for me a very striking absence and a and a real loss. I think not everyone in my very small congregation is interested in coming to Zoom worship and Zoom coffee hour. So those of us who come are already a subset of the community. But I think many people who do come would say, after the first, maybe first awkward coffee hour on Zoom, or the maybe the first two that were pretty awkward, uh, we realized that we needed to not try to make small talk with 18 people on Zoom, that that would be dreadful. So I begin our coffee hour with a specific question that is hopefully invites, you know, a meaningful answer, not, not a superficial answer, and sometimes a question very explicitly related to one of our, our readings. So when we read Jacob wrestling in Genesis, I asked people, you know, what they were wrestling with in the middle of the night. And I think most people would say, most people who've been coming, and obviously for some people they're not coming, and that's kind of voting with your feet or voting with your, your internet connection, that they find these conversations to be way more meaningful than the conversations they used to have at coffee hour in, in quote unquote, in person, you know, real church, and that they feel much more connected actually in a certain way to everyone. And, and even praying by Zoom, there are real losses to not praying together in the flesh, but we are now praying seeing one another's faces, which is not what you usually get. You usually get the backs of people's heads. So like everything else in life, I think Christians have to say everything is always all mixed up. There is in every situation real loss, real damage, uh, real, real lamentableness. And, you know, this is one of the, one of the great vexing, wonderful, difficult theological gifts of the church. And it is the concept of Felix culpa, the concept that it's not, it's not just the case that there are sometimes silver linings. It's not just the case that sometimes good things endure in bad situations. Felix culpa is the theological category that invites, requires Christians to say that there are in bad situations specific goods that could not have been had that bad situation not been there. And and to look for and acknowledge and exult in those good things does not mean that you don't also lament and bewail all that is lamentable and deserving of bewailment. But it is also the case that there are goods that don't just, they're not just coincidental, they couldn't have been there were the bad things also not there. And that's that's a really, I think it's a really important part of the Christian way of looking at the world. and and it seems abundant and all over the place in the pandemic. Felix Culpa, that's that's a new concept for me, and it really sounds like it's going to be fruitful because it's so different from optimism and sort of, well, look on the bright side or be, be grateful for your blessings or it's not that bad. I mean, it's a very different idea that does sound very particularly Christian. Yeah, and I think this sense that there's no purity you know, that things are mixed up. We, we are all mixed up as individual people. All the good and bad is all mixed up in us. And often often the good and the bad is the flip side of the same, you know, our, our individual vices are the flip sides of our individual virtues often. And situations are also all mixed up, the good and the bad. I think there's no, there's no way around that. So 
Lauren, when I talk to students here at the University of Virginia, what I hear over and over again is the pain of uncertainty, you know, the anxiety and the fear of this moment, uh, as, especially as we look to the future. And so I'm curious to, to know where you are finding hope, what you are offering to your students, where you're seeing God in all of this. Yeah, that's a great question. So I also feel, I feel some anxieties and uncertainties. I am a J on the Myers-Briggs. I very much like to be able to plan. And obviously in this situation, we can't really do much planning. That said, I do sometimes think, and this is again, maybe me thinking as a historian, compared to other moments of human history, I don't mean to minimize all the deaths that have happened. Obviously, many tragic deaths have happened, tens and tens of thousands of such deaths. And yet, this is certainly not as bad as it could be. And so for me, actually, the study of history shows me these things happen. There have been plagues and pandemics before. They have typically been fairly short-lived. Lots of people have died in them. This is in some ways a like a normal feature of human history. I, I think maybe not Maybe only people who are allowed to become historians take comfort in that, but I do take some comfort in it. In terms of hope, I think I actually, this may not be helpful to to students. Students are exactly where I find the hope. And that, maybe that sounds sort of cliched, but I was reading recently the letters of the modernist poet H.D. And I was actually dipping into her because I'd been looking at a lot of modernist literature about the influenza epidemic, people like Virginia Woolf. And I was reading HD, not actually writing about influenza. She was in fact writing a letter to a friend about psychoanalysis. But she 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 used the word hope in that letter, and I'll just give you a few sentences, two sentences from it. She writes, the things I wrote you were simply spotlight bits that I can't talk about. There are lots of other things, a woven tapestry of background. I hope eventually to shape it. The things I wrote you were simply spotlight bits that I can't talk about. There are lots of other things, a woven tapestry of background. I hope eventually to shape it. And I was was so struck by those two sentences. And I like it, I like, I love the textual metaphor. I love the idea that the knotted up underside of a tapestry is our subconscious. I love her use of spotlight, which is a term that recognizes, as I think the sacramental economy recognizes, and as the the biblical testimony to the God of Israel recognizes, that not everything is illuminated all at once. And I and I like her suggestion that hope, I hope eventually to shape it, that hope, the amelioration of despair is located in the act of shaping. I do think there are stories that are that are not really shapeable. I, I was reading HD, this was a few weeks ago, I was reading her right as we were commemorating the 75th anniversary of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There's a lot in that story of, of the atomic bomb that is not shapeable, that resists, you know, narrative structure, the actual experience of having all of the skin burned off your body, but not dying and walking down the street with many other people who are in that same condition. That's not shapeable, I don't think, for the most part. And there are some aspects of this current pandemic, perhaps, that will resist shaping. But I I think there's a lot in this experience that will eventually 
be given shape, be given shape by storytellers, by writers, by prayers and prayers. And I, I do take hope in the expectation of narrative shape emerging in response to all of this. Well, it's so good to hear your perspective as a, as a scholar, as a theologian, as a writer, as a priest, and to be reminded, you know, of the, the history of the context of the bigger story and the, the, the ways that we're participating in, in this life, uh, in this life with God. So thank you for talking about pandemic Christianity today with me, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking about it with me. all feeling the pain of living amidst global fragility and suffering. If you're like me, you've often asked, where is God in this? I'm grateful to Lauren for lifting up the stories of faithful Christians who endured plagues in earlier eras and for turning us toward their wisdom even now. Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Come by my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. There you'll find show notes and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. Download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections. <laughs>